Welcome to another episode of The Boarding Pass with Ken Weeb and Murat Atesh of The Athletic Winnipeg, where the Jets have had a lot of uncertainty through the beginning of January. They lost the playoff spot, they got it back. They freed Niku, they caged him right back up, and then the injury troubles that have plagued this team seem to be on their way towards better because Andrew Kopp and Dmitry Kulikov both made appearances in the Jets lineup on the road trip that just ended. Ken Weeb was the man making the flights. He's in an airport right now. That's how much he loves you guys. Ken, um, I know you've got several thoughts on the road trip that just was. Uh, first off and first and foremost is that Mark Shifley might be redeeming one of the predictions you made for this season. <laughs> so I want to throw it to you. What can you say about that? Where's that coming from? Yeah, pretty uh, spicy hot run here for uh, for Mark Shifley. And, you know, it's been impressive to watch, but I was doing a little bit of the math uh, last night as I was uh, putting this piece together for the Athletic and the observations. And lo and behold, those 13 goals and 27 points that he has uh, produced during the last 18 games not only has him uh, well over that point-per-game pace, but only Austin Matthews has scored more goals during that stretch with 15 and only Artemi Panarin and Jonathan Huberdeau of the Florida Panthers have more points at 28. So uh, this is not just a uh, impressive individual performance. It's among the league's best uh, during that same stretch of time. I mean, we've talked at, at length about how Shifley and Blake Wheeler are both carrying their own lines right now, but uh, Mark Shifley's put together an absolutely elite stretch of hockey right now in terms of his offensive production, and he really relished uh, the spotlight that was on him uh, during that trip to Toronto, uh, during you know to his home province and everything that went with it. He he took a stroll down memory lane, uh, talking about Team North America and and playing on a line with Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews for part of that event, and and lo and behold, he's producing like those guys right now. So it's been a pretty impressive run. Uh, for Shifley among the, among the things that the Jets have done uh, during this recent stretch where I think a lot of people wondered if this might be the time of the year where the uh, underlying metrics caught up with them and, and they took a bit of a tumble. But instead, coming out of the break, uh, lo and behold, the Jets are 3-3-2 three, and two during that uh, eight-game stretch coming out of the break. But they've also got six more important games to come before the break. And uh, you'll be uh, guiding the ship uh, during that three-game road trip uh, in the in the week following this one coming up. Yeah, off to the All-Star break, that uh, Chicago, Carolina, and Columbus trip and the home stretch right before that are going to have an awful lot to say about Winnipeg's playoff fortunes as the, as the season rolls on. Can the road trip that we just had, you mentioned the underlying numbers, and then to to go from still not driving the play in terms of uh, overall 5-on-5 flow or anything like that, the penalty kill seems to have healed. And I would say the most important thing for me personally about the, the road trip that just was is that the Jets avenged some pretty lopsided losses against Toronto and Montreal. Those ones in particular, back in Winnipeg in way back in 2019 and the first home game of 2020, Winnipeg looked outclassed offensively against Toronto and Montreal. There were some giveaways, there were some mistakes, uh, dropped six goals to each of them, and then to rattle off back-to-back wins on this road trip at a time when, for the moment, the Jets had lost their wildcard spot and they needed to win to get back in. I think that's what we're looking at for a little while, and they're going to have to continue to play more games like this one. To your mind, why were they able to do that? Yeah, I mean, it was another good test of the resolve. I think it's always a bit of a eye-opener when a team's been in a playoff spot for as long as the Jets have and 
and all of a sudden they're looking over, not only looking over their shoulder, but they're looking up at other teams. So, uh, I mean, a penalty kill has been a bone of contention for, I'm sure, both the players and the coaching staff for uh, the majority of the year. I mean, they had seen some strides and progress, but at the end of the day, it just simply wasn't good enough, and they went through a couple of really rough, rough stretches, and that will impact those numbers. But, I mean, for a while they were back to running around that 50 to 57% range. So, I mean, that's just simply not good enough. And that was very, you know, reminiscent of the early season struggles that they were were dealing with. But uh, lo and behold, I don't think it was a coincidence. Andrew Kopp came back into the lineup, and obviously the penalty kill uh, elevated its collective game uh, to a degree. It's never a one-man show, but uh, Andrew is an elite penalty killer, and he's done a nice job in that regard. And uh, there was a little bit of a switch on the back end as well after Nathan Beaulieu went out with his most recent uh, injury. Tucker Pullman's been added to the mix on the back end, and I think he's done a pretty, uh, you know, pretty impressive job for the most part. He's been paired a lot with Anthony Boteto. So uh, penalty kill's been very good, but, I mean, on the flip side, the, the power play has just been absolutely awesome uh, of late. I mean, <laughs> another great example yesterday. So just when you think it's going to be all seam plays again and Blake Wheeler you know, feathered that pass through the legs of Ryan Suter uh, for that impressive one-timer goal against the Wild. Now, yesterday, he freezes the the forward defender and finds Neil Pionk for that one-timer. And, I mean, adding to the mix, I mean, the second unit, which has not seen a lot of time at all, uh, comes through with a goal from the exact same spot with from, you know, the Josh Morrissey slapper and the redirection from Andrew Kopp. So, I mean, it's... You can't call it internal competition like it was a couple of years ago when both units were really producing. I mean, the top unit's taken 130 to 145 a lot of the time, so hasn't been a lot of opportunity, but the second unit got an opportunity and, and delivered an important goal in what was, a, you know, I think the Jets, for a good chunk of the game against Boston, played pretty well, but uh, that was one of those close but not close enough kind of moments for them where uh, the Bruins is such a team, they're such a they're, they know how to win. I mean, they're a team that went to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final for a reason and has been one of the best teams in the NHL once again this year. So, and David I Pasternak mean, sure knows how to shoot, doesn't he? Oh, my goodness, uh, that man. Yes, there's uh, no doubt about that. The past abilities were endless uh, yesterday, and, <laughs> and what a, what an impressive display. And the, the, the funny thing is, I mean, it, it wasn't always – it wasn't just a – it wasn't just that line. It, in fact, it – wasn't that line at all i mean i think they kept uh, brad marchand and uh, and bergeron uh, well under wraps for the most part uh i mean one of the shifts it was a F- pasternak was caught up there with a fourth line uh, and the other one uh, he was out there with krejci and debrusque so i mean it wasn't even the usual suspects that he was uh, racking up the totals with so i mean pasternak is an elite scorer an elite sniper and uh, he delivered a you know a, a virtuoso performance in a week that we also saw uh, Austin Matthews deliver a couple of pretty high end goals against the Jets and I mean it won't count in the actual score sheet but I mean that line a wrister snapper over the blocker of Freddie Anderson uh, is something that would show up on a lot of highlight reels as well I mean just uh, just a sheer impressive display and the fact that he can score from distance. I mean, we haven't seen that as much this year per se, but I mean, he <laughs> he's just was so casual about it afterward when I was talking to him. It just was like, you saw it first in the celebration, he just kind of, he just went to the bench like it was, 
Yeah, no big deal. That that's what I do. I'm Patrick Line. I have a great release. That's how I score goals. And most everyone else in the rink is looking. They're like, "Did he really just score from outside the circles on a on a snapshot that Freddie Anderson did not have time to react on?" Man, I mean, that was uh, just an absolute rocket. I, I love that he he totally downplayed everything about it, and then he looked at me and smiled, and he goes, "Yeah." That was a pretty good shot. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding, Patrick. That was a pretty good shot. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and even, too, I mean, speaking of highlight reels, Kyle Connor, uh, boy, oh, boy, that move that he made to go across on the backhand, uh, slithering by Tory Krug, and even his backhand, when he came out from behind the net to find Mark Shifley for the, his 22nd of the year, I mean, both of those plays were pretty dynamic as well. But, I mean, the Jets are going to lament that, uh, quick breakdown i mean two goals in 33 seconds in the third period in a game where they found their legs early which is usually the toughest time to find them uh they just kind of ran out of gas and a couple of mental breakdowns and uh, really cost them and in a game where they actually played pretty well but uh, i mean close close but no cigar if you will is not uh i think andrew cop really put a bow on it when he said it was they were 10 minutes away from a great road trip exceptional actually if the jets could have found a way to pull even six out of eight or and they were in position to take seven out of eight uh, given the quality of competition i mean that would have been a pretty impressive display as it stands i mean five out of eight against those opponents is still a pretty good stretch of games for the jets i would say but i mean if you're trying to find some separation uh, in a place where things have really tightened up uh, they need to collect every point they they can get or else, uh, it's oh, I mean, it's going to be a battle right down to the I think till the last week of the season anyway. But uh, this next span is going to really uh, the latest really big test of their metal is uh, just around the corner here. Yeah, I, I don't know that separation is necessarily going to happen no. for anybody down the stretch here. And all of a sudden, you got Nashville's offense fixed because Pekarene, their goaltender, is scoring <laughs> goals. Um, the the Jets have just one game in hand. Or pardon me. Um, Vancouver has uh, the game in hand from two points behind the Jets. Nashville's right in the thick of it. Minnesota's not far off. I don't think Chicago's necessarily going to be a factor, but there's just so many teams that still have a lot to say about the playoff picture. Um, on the Kyle Connor and Mark Shifley and Patrick Line note, um, had a fun discussion with folks on Twitter the other day, and I wanted to ask you your take. So, you know, call it Game 7, overtime, whatever it is, but the game is on the line. You have a puck. On one player on the Winnipeg Jets' huh. stick, who do you choose? Because those three are just such different quality finishers. All of them do it so well. Is there somebody that, that stands out to you as the one that you want on with the game on the line? Yeah, where's the puck? Is it in tight? Is it in the <laughs> slot? Uh, is it is it a one-timer from the OV, OV spot? I mean, Ivan Mark Scheifele scored a, a couple from there uh, this year as well, but... Uh, I'm gonna defer on that one. I, I don't have a I don't have a I don't have a good choice. I think in hockey, as you know, it depends on who's feeling good at that particular moment. Uh, if the play is in tight around the net, you probably would choose Kyle Connor. But uh, in terms of uh, shot, I'd like to know what the time and space is available uh, before making a decision. And uh, I think that all three of those guys are really in a spot where they're delivering offensively, and that's really all the Jets need. But uh, I really see. Uh, We've seen goal-scoring streaks for both Connor and Shifley so far. I, I will not be surprised if uh, Patrick Laine goes on a, a bit of a heater here. 
Uh, I'm not saying it's going to be an 18 in a month like we saw last November, but I'm seeing signs in his game, especially as we saw the 13 shots on goal and the 17 attempts in that home game against the Leafs. That would suggest to me that if those looks continue to be uh, given to him, he's going to uh, quickly go from 15 to 20 goals. And then from there, we'll see what the second half brings. Yeah, and if he's shooting with that confidence and picking such a small spot with that speed as he did in the shootout, um, I don't think it matters that Mark Shifley, who accidentally blocked that shot that was going wide, thinks that Patrick Laine's shot is a muffin. Um, that was one of the funner little bits bits of banter back and forth uh, on the road trip as well. Um, I will confess to reading the the updates on um, on yeah. Patrick Laine's shot and Mark Shifley. Patrick was saying that um, that he was probably blocking it to try to bring it down and score the goal himself or something like that. That was a that was a great little line from those guys. Um, I want to take it to the dark side now, Ken Weeb. Um, we, we've had the free Niku movement all over the interwebs all season long, and certainly we've indulged in it ourselves. I think we should take a certain amount of responsibility for it. But we've got a young, uh, talented player who uh, is looking to carve out a, a full-time job in the NHL. He's losing his waiver exemption at the end of the season. Winnipeg needs to know that this guy's an NHL-caliber talent. Um, and he's been called up. He's even stayed up um, as... Uh, Logan Shaw has been waived in his stead, which means Winnipeg is risking losing a player to make sure that Sami Niku stays on the team uh, with Dmitry Kulikov's return to health. What he has not done is stay in the roster, so uh, on the playing roster, I should say. And he's been freed, he's been caged. What does it mean? Yeah, I mean, for me, unless he spends eight games in a row in the press box, which I don't think will happen, uh, I think it just was a, you know, I think that was more about the opponent. For me, I think it, <laughs> my logic would have been a mobile defender at the end of a road trip would probably have been a, a benefit for the Jets in yesterday's game. But I thought that Sammy was a little bit tentative again against the, the Maple Leafs. So uh, I'm not, I was a, t- a tad surprised, but not overly surprised. I mean, I I think the safer move yesterday would have been to, uh, sit down Lucas Spiza, who is obviously dealing with some kind of lower body ailment. He's skipped a bunch of practices. Uh, would have given, I mean, he already has two days between games, but it would have given him a, a big block to maybe get that healed up. But uh, I, for me, I guess it was one of those things where Paul Maurice didn't want to, knowing he didn't have the last change, didn't want to have Niku thrown to the Wolves against the Bergeron line on on a frequent on a frequent occurrence. Um, otherwise, I, I think you probably would have leaned towards playing with playing him but on the flip side based on what Maurice said pregame and that he didn't plan to have guys sitting around long and also the fact that Shaw got waived as you mentioned I mean if Niku was not going to be in the lineup with at least some regularity in this next stretch I think they would have just sent him down I mean Logan Shaw is a important depth player obviously if they can get him to the moose they'll be happy but uh, I don't think they would have risked losing an asset but by if they were planning on just either sending Niku back in the near future or not giving him uh, a block of games coming up. And I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I've been writing about Niku. We've been talking about him a lot. Uh, he's in a, he's in a difficult spot. I mean, he's being asked to, you know, not put the shackles on, but he really needs to make sure he's not poor defensively. But at the same time, I think that there have been stretches in these the two games and the limited action that he saw that 
he was just a little bit too tentative. Now, a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that he missed, um, he only played two games in the American League in the previous month. So uh, it's in a tough spot. I mean, the, the Jets are in a playoff position and they have to figure out whether or not they're going to use the 37-game trial on how many games is Niku going to A, B in or B force his way to B in. So uh, I still see a role for him on this team. I think there will be more opportunities in this stretch. But, I mean, uh, Paul has uh, you know often shown that he would prefer to go with what he knows he's going to get in brackets, if you will. But at the same time, I'm with, I'm with you. And as I wrote, I mean, the Jets need to find out what they have in Sammy Niku and uh, parts of his skill set would probably help a lot of their the issues that they're having in their game in terms of exits and retrievals and all those things but that's the thing against Montreal the one of the rare mistakes that Miku made in the game he was just a little bit too tentative on that play along the wall and then all of a sudden the support he wasn't sure where the support was and it led to a turnover didn't lead to a scoring chance but it was one of those situations where Sammy needs to do what he's good at in order to get a regular spot in the lineup and that means using his legs uh, as a huge asset like they are and getting involved uh, you know on the second wave moving you know I'm not asking him to be a one-man uh, exit but he has the ability to to change the way the Jets break out and and that's what I think we're going to see the more the more comfortable he gets those things are going to start to shine in his game but We'll, we'll see we'll see what the opportunity brings and I know there are a lot of people that are listing that will be skeptical but Paul Maurice is chipping away at that up front in playing Jansen Harkins on occasion over Gabriel Bork so there are some strides being made on that on that front it's not just an automatic veteran insertion but it's a work in progress and we'll see how that continues to develop uh, up front as well with Harkins and I, I personally think that uh, Harkins is a guy that I'm I'm intrigued by the the prospect of uh, Harkins Nick Nick Shore and Mason Appleton line. I think Appleton's game is really uh, I mean started to take off might be a little bit of a stretch, but uh, it's definitely improving and and he's uh, you know he's filled with confidence and, and I loved what he said after that short-handed goal. I've scored at every level and I'm going to score at this one as well. I mean. I, I had Appleton as a potential Brandon Tanev replacement. Uh, I mean, if not if not right away, then as the as we move on and as he continues his uh, you know development as a player, I, I see him as a guy that has you know double digit goal potential, and he's starting to play with a little bit more of an edge. He's moving his feet more, and and now he's on the penalty kill and, and making an impact. I really like that uh, grouping. Him and Kyle Connor have have done a nice job since they've been used together. Well, yeah, I'm speaking of guys that missed a lot of time and then were brought back into the lineup. I, I, I think it's notable. Oh, hold I just on, pulled, hold on, hold on. Oh, hold pardon on. me. You have, a, you, you, you have some Niku thoughts. You, you can't get, uh, I think you should share some Niku thoughts. I saw oh. your tweet. You said it was a, uh, you know, you weren't, you weren't as outraged with the decision yesterday as uh, some others were. But where do you think Niku A stands and B, where does it fall for him? Well, you know what? I'm going to answer this in the circuitous, long-rooted way that I, I, I promise you we're going to, we're going to land on Niku. But I, I do think it's substantial that Mason Appleton, you're mentioning him kind of rounding into form. And um, I feel like with him, we're at that sort of, we're at this sort of spot with Mason Appleton's game where 
We might have ideally hoped he'd be in by October had he managed to stay healthy and not have that unfortunate accident uh, playing football before the Heritage Classic. I think he's got kind of back to ground zero. Like you mentioned, now that he's getting some penalty kill minutes, he's got his goal recently. Um, and is starting to look like a player who can uh, claim that a bottom six spot and maybe even be uh, that that Brandon Tanev replacement. Um, because let me editorialize, I don't think that Gabriel Bork has been able to do that, even though he's taken some of the PK minutes when the opportunity has been there. Um, but I think it's noteworthy that it's taken some time since Appleton's return to health to get to that stage. Because with Sami Niku, I think there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing going on where, yes... I 100% noted that same giveaway, tweeted about it um, against Montreal where Niku was tentative and and clearly had enough time to move a puck and and do the things that he he does well, do Sammy Niku things, and was unable to do it. And I agree with the tentativeness, which leads to my tweet, um, which is essentially that in a vacuum, the idea that a young player like Niku played two kind of so-so games, came out for a veteran, no worries at all. That's a completely reasonable and rational thing. Um, but the chicken and egg thing for me with Niku is that I think for him to get to a, a position of confidence and comfortability and a lack of that tentativeness so that he can show the things that he does, we might need to see him for a few, several games in a row uh, before we can make that effective judgment. And I think that um, had we judged Mason Appleton two or three games into into his return, uh, we would have come away with a much different uh, impression of what he's capable of than what we than than what he really is capable of. And I think that some of that applies to Niku too. I don't mean to say that the Jets aren't going to at some point give him that look, uh, but I, I think with a player who seems to have a, a bit of an emotion, bit of a hard on himself sort of style of play, uh, he's been in and out of the lineup. He hasn't necessarily had all of the opportunities, but he's also had plenty of injuries. Uh, I, I think a little bit of calm and smooth, um, even through that tentativeness and, and some repeated games, it would be a boon in terms of getting him going to the point where the Winnipeg Jets want want him to be. I would even say too. I mean, the fact that he only had two mistakes in a, in what was his first game since October that that would work in his favor. And I, I mean, Paul Maurice actually, when we talked to him after the game, when I asked him about him directly, uh, he would agree. He agreed. I mean, he said I, although he didn't stand out and he made this backhand saucer play and one tentative play, he he thought he would have been. He said he would grade him higher than maybe what it looked like given the circumstances of missing all that time, but. Then too, I mean, there were a couple moments against Toronto where I thought that I thought that he was going to really shine against Toronto and in a in a, in a kind of wide open kind of game. But I mean, he didn't get into too much trouble defensively, which again is a, is another feather in his cap, if you will. But I mean, don't I mean, I'm with you. I mean, I, I in a perfect world, I think that Niku probably could have or should have played yesterday. But I mean. Right now we're not coaching and we're just uh, we're just <laughs> playing armchair coach. So yeah, I've got a comfy uh, chair. I don't know about yours in the airport, but uh, I'm, I'm yeah, sitting very comfortably. Yeah, but I mean too. I mean, as you're going to get to, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just thought that there was a little bit more meat on the bone before we move on to Kulikov. So, and I, I mean, I thought Kulikov was very steady yesterday, and it's funny how perception changes changes in a month. I mean, at the time, I mean. In a week, the week or two before the injury, I think that Kulikov had elevated his game, but there were also stretches where earlier on in the year he had struggled. I mean, he took a lot of minor penalties, as you mentioned, uh, and he had had some issues that he was sorting through. But, 
I mean, when you're looking at, at what it did to the rest of the defense core once he left the lineup, now all of a sudden he looks like the best option right now to play with Neil Pionk, and that's what he did in the third period against Boston. So I think it'll be an interesting uh, you know, dynamic moving forward as the as the Jets sort of sort some things out here on the back end. But as we both talked about and as I wrote about, the fact that the Jets have so many expiring contracts on the back end where that that's what complicates things for me. Um, they they need to find out about Niku and it, it can't, it, if it has to come at the expense of one of the expiring contracts, well, I think that's the cost of doing business uh, given where the Jets are in their cycle. But I mean, that doesn't mean you play Niku in all 37, but it means he's got to get a, at least a pretty decent taste as long as he shows that he earns that taste and I mean he said it himself he's got to show that he belongs and we both believe he has a skill set to to still have an impact on the team as early as this year and in the second half yeah and to just to reiterate your, your point I mean uh, you have Dmitry Kulikov unrestricted free agent this summer you have Lucas Spiza unrestricted free agent Anthony Batetto and then Nathan Beaulieu who's on on the IR as well so I mean I'm sure Winnipeg will depending on what happens with with Dylan Sandberg or what they believe to be Ville Hainala's development or even Sami Nikahu himself there's no guarantee that all these guys are like all these guys aren't coming back there there, there wouldn't be enough room but there, the Winnipeg Jets may still have need of of players on this list with expiring contracts Still, I agree with you from an asset management perspective. Um, Sami Niku, the restricted free agent who's on his entry-level deal, losing that waiver exemption, I think that that's where the investment should be, especially given um, none of these are in none of these players are in the Morrissey, uh, Bufflin type of quality uh, on the ice as well. They they've done fine and and they've been exemplary in their ability to sort of commit to the system being taught to them. Um, in sort of a stopgap way in a lot of cases uh, being claimed on waivers or, or signed late in the summer or, or whatever the, the circumstances may be. So with that many folks on the on the turnaround, I, I definitely agree with that point that you're making about Niku's contract. Um, it's an interesting one. I don't know. I think I would need to do a lot, of, a lot of homework before this turns into a proper rant about load management as it applies to the NHL. But it, it is interesting for me um, you, you mentioned Lucas Spiza and the fact that he's he's battling with a couple of things right now, and uh, you know he's missed a couple of practices, and uh, it certainly seems to imply that he isn't necessarily at 100%. And that's a situation where there's a back-to-back game with the Winnipeg Jets. Um, he ends up being bumped from the pairing that he started on, perhaps because of Kulikov's excellent play. Um, Spiza last night was on the ice for more a, a smaller percentage of shot attempts for the Winnipeg Jets than than any other player. And no defenseman was able to escape being on the ice for goals against, but of course he he was on uh, for for one there as well too. So I wonder if there is anything there at all. And again, you mentioned we're out, we're we're safely on our chairs. We do not know Lucas Spiza's physical condition like Lucas Spiza knows his physical condition, and the Winnipeg Jets do. It just seems like a tailor-made opportunity to bring a guy out of the lineup, let him have that rest, and, and move forward. And I think hockey players are too stubborn for load management. I, I think there's a ferocity there. There's a real, like a real um, uh, weight placed on the sort of heart that you can show by playing through these little smaller or medium things. I just wonder if uh, if that's ever some place where we're going to get to in the NHL scheme. Well, it's a good question, and I will counter with I think that the 
situation may have been different if Dmitry Kulikov is not playing his first game back after 18 on the shelf, uh, then I think there's a much greater chance that the load management element could have been put into play. But I think there was a, you know, I think there probably was a concern from Paul Maurice, and it's a natural concern for any coach, and it wouldn't apply specifically to Kulikov. But when you have a veteran guy coming back after missing that much time, I mean, he said it himself at, at the practice day in Toronto, uh, you just don't know how long it's going to take. It might take a shift or two. It might take a period or two. It might might take three or four games. So uh, I don't I don't think he was uh, willing to run the risk of uh, sitting Spiza and Kulikov is all of a sudden not at the level he was expecting him to be at. And then all of a sudden you're playing. Uh, I mean, oddly enough, you're probably playing Sami Niku a few extra minutes uh, than maybe you'd wanted, or you're playing Anthony Botetto a few extra minutes. So. I think that was probably a, a bigger determining factor in the decision, but um, I mean, I don't know that for a fact. That's just my interpretation of how things happen. But no, yeah, I mean, I trust you're your right. perspectives. I mean, well, I, I'm I'm very I'm happy to try to provide them uh, where I can. But just from no, like being around experienced coaches, I think that that probably was a factor. But I mean, some people would counter by saying it, that would make it an even more opportune time to play Niku and having his fresh legs when you're when you're going into that kind of situation. So. Uh, I mean, it's a good, good, valid point. I mean, I think it, load management uh, is going to apply in some regard. Oh, it may apply. I mean, the Jets may have no choice. But that, I think that leads us to our next topic. I mean, uh, load management is a factor between the pipes. I think the Bruins do it uh, almost as well or better than anybody. We know the Islanders went through it to a degree last year. But um, Connor Hellebuck, we know he loves to play a lot and... I just can't see a scenario where Lauren Brassois doesn't need to play a few more games uh, during the second half. I mean, I can see the scenario where the Jets are fighting for every single available point, but uh, I mean, going into the year, we expected Brassois to be in the 20 to 25 range, maybe even pushing 27 if he played at the level he did last year. Now it's going to be a challenge for him to get to 20 starts. I mean, yes, yesterday was his 10th start of the year and his 13th appearance, so... Uh, I'll be very curious to see how that all goes. And, I mean, as I wrote, I mean, I, I don't think it was Lauren Brassois' fault that the Jets lost yesterday. But on the flip side, if if I told you going into the game, like Paul Maurice said in the post game, and he wasn't pointing at Lauren Brassois, but if you get four against the Bruins, that that's a game that a team should win on a regular basis. Same as when the Jets got four against Jordan Bennington and lost 5-4, uh, to four, right? I mean, that's... Uh, you just you don't have that many opportunities to score that many goals against those type of teams and when you do uh, you need to deliver on them if you're in the position that the Winnipeg Jets are in so I mean it's a big big couple months for Brassois on a lot of levels he's a pending unrestricted free agent I mean going into last year I think the Jets would have loved the security of a a two-year deal with Brassois Brassois in his mind I assume was thinking that he'd have one more good year as a backup to Hellebuck and then go into the Car Carter Hutton show and try to find his own number one job. But, I mean, as you as you mentioned in your grades, I mean, average is okay, but average doesn't get you a starting job with one of the uh, 30, 30 other teams. Yeah, and with giving up seven to, to Pittsburgh, six and five, uh, like the Winnipeg Jets need to have that opportunity Um Especially because Connor Hellebuck has uh, played more games and made more saves than any other goaltender in the NHL at this stage of the season. 
Um, like you said, and uh, to echo you a little bit, we were looking for more of something approaching load management, though, of course, we always knew that Hellebuck would get the lion's share. Uh, he is the number one guy in the Winnipeg Jets run that sort of uh, system. They'll lean heavily on their number one guy. We've seen that recently. With Laurent Brassois, it's an interesting situation for me because in some ways, he is a, a textbook example of of not getting too high or too low on a goaltender in a small sample size. Because last year, first half of the season, the guy was absolutely on fire. Despite his career numbers being a little bit closer to 900 or so, he was outplaying Connor Hellebuck. He was making all of the saves. Some of them were highlight reels. Some of them were kind of funny. There was the one where his pad kind of slipped off and he still made the save partway through at home in the second period there. Um, there were a lot of spectacular moments in Laurent Brassois' debut. And if you knew that you were getting a player like that or even close to that for an extended period of time at their ages, given their relationships, you would see it would be an easy case to make to claw away at some of Hellebuck's starts and to look longer term with Laurent Brassois. Um, and I would, I would also suggest that what we've seen this year from him is, is not yet um, you know, a, an indication of, of the sort of average backup that, that, I, that I believe him to be. Uh, I'm not sure what gives head coaches and, and GMs peace of mind at the end of the day because goaltending fluctuates as much as it does. Uh, but I, I think that's kind of the reality in Winnipeg's net right now especially in a season where Connor Hellebuck has far and away been the MVP, but has started to slide of late. And I don't want to overstate his slide because I just talked about sample sizes. It's just that they need this guy uh, at his best, and they need their goaltending to be at their best to protect the playoff spot. Uh, because I, despite the great story that it is to have Eric Comrie back in the in the fold, and despite how hilarious and wonderful and, and, and strong the performance of Mikhail Burden has been so far, uh, there's nobody waiting in the wings uh, at, at any other level in the Jets organization to take those starts or to, to supplement that goaltending. No, for sure. And, and I would say, too, I mean, I want to reiterate that I'm not just trying to be hard on Lauren Brassois. I just I think that he can be a easily be a capable backup, and I think that he can handle a bigger piece of the load. But that also means that he has to play at that level he was at last year. And again, I would also say that it was a good reflection for Brassois, who was in a you know in a poor defensive system the year before in Edmonton, where they didn't play very well in their own end, and that impacted his numbers much like last year. You know, for a for a chunk of it anyway. I mean, he did get he had a lot of high volume games, but I mean, he, that was the best collection of defensemen that he's played in front of, and we know that the collection of the talent isn't at the same level on the back end for the Jets this year. So uh, that probably has something to do with the numbers, but I, I still think that he can be a a more than capable backup and. Whether or not he can be a number one, that will be up to him to determine. But I agree with you. I mean, his numbers are skewed by a couple of of big outings. But the problem with that also is that as a backup, you know that you're going in uh, in a favorable position very few times in the course of a season. You're playing back-to-backs and you're getting uh, out-of-conference games and, and not all your games are going to come against the Detroit Red Wings with, with all due respect to them. So uh, that's why I say it's... Uh, I think it's a big month ahead for Bressois. I mean, of course he was under a tough situation yesterday, but, I mean, Yaro Halak didn't have the best game either, but, I mean, his goals against is 225. And, I mean, that's a substantial difference when you're uh, looking at a guy who has 
you know, close to four. But, you know, one guy had 19 starts, the other had 10. So, like, to your point about sample size, I mean, it's all it's all relative. And and much like that pitcher in baseball coming out of the bullpen, if you uh, give up a three-run homer in one-third of an inning, it's going to take you two or three start, or it's going to take you probably a month to get those numbers kind of back to where you want them. So, uh, but we know that Brassois is going to have to play a little bit. I mean, whether that number is 16 or if he gets to 15, you know, he's going to get to 16 to 20 starts. I mean, he's going to want to play better down the stretch because there's a lot of incentive for him to do so, whether that means sticking around with the Jets for another year and trying his luck again or moving on somewhere else. Yeah, you know, to look through his career too, especially at the pro level, he, he hasn't stayed in one spot particularly often. And um, often it, it, you sort of wonder about the the quality of defense that he's uh, that he's had in front of him. And pardon me, I misspoke. I said especially at the pro level, well, he actually had a few years in a row within the Edmonton Oilers organization. I, I'm looking back to um, in the AHL, he played for Abbotsford in Oklahoma. In the ECHL, he played for Alaska and Bakersfield. Um, he was an Edmonton Oil King for a long time before that. It's just a, it's an interesting career path where it's uh, it seems or it feels to me like it's been tough for Brassois to really plant consistency into his game. Um, that said, uh, I don't blame him in the slightest for uh, David Pasternak being left alone in the slot for a one timer um, or, or for a quick release shot uh, with, with time and space. Uh, there, there are certain contextual things, and I don't know if you believe in scheduled losses, but when a team's playing on the back-to-back or third and four nights or things like that, um, the, the Jets certainly were in tough from the opening whistle, I would say, last night. Um, so for me, it's been tough. I, you know you know, I've been going through the player grades, and um, I, I, I've been obsessing over the methods that go into them with a few sure. different metrics, and then some of the subjectivity stuff. I, I wait for my own opinions as well. Um, so... With him, with Laurent Brassois, it's been pretty solid average, sometimes not, uh, but maybe within the realm of reason for a player uh, in, in his shoes or in his skates, I should say. Um, I think uh, that that in terms of the the leadership on this team, I, I would say that I would go bring it back to Mark Scheifele in terms of the all-world off, uh, offensive season he's had so far this year. Um, I, I continue to be impressed by Neil Pionk, but I, I think Winnipeg's forwards and goaltending probably are the are the leaders in terms of what's driving results, uh, especially because of the defensive load that some of these forwards are being asked to carry to, to maybe compensate for the lack of uh, you know all star depth on on the on the back end right now. Uh, I, I wanted to know. I want to put these things to you because sometimes I feel like um, my. Uh, my opinions come from 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 different places, and you know yep. I, I bury myself into it for a, a few days, and I'm, I'm working on this piece, and there, you know, here come uh, comes this deep dive on these player grades or what have you. But were there any surprises? Did I did do you think that I rated anyone particularly too highly or too lowly? Because if we agree on everything, I mean that's great. I, we're both brilliant, and I love it. <laughs> um, but I'd be particularly curious to think uh, or to know if you think I missed on anybody, and we could talk about that a little bit. No, totally fair. Uh, I will. Uh, I'll collect my thoughts on that subject, and I want to first know wh- which players get, got you the most grief on the Twitter machine or in the comments section uh, at the Athletic, and then I'll I'll go into the other part of that. Oh yeah, that's a great question as well. I I think that the defensive piece was the much more contentious, which actually surprised me a little bit because with respect to the forwards, I. 
um, laid out a couple of examples with data and with video of, of really high-end elite players offensively like Mark Shifley um, and, and Kyle Connor in particular, actually, I should say, kind of not getting it done on the defensive side of the puck. And I, and I wondered if, uh, if saying that, okay, these guys have been brilliant. Mark Shifley's offensive season is one of the best few in the NHL, however you measure it. If you look at points, um, he's absolutely at the top. If, he's, if you're looking at sort of contribution of chances and other things, whether it's uh, in, in a war stat or a game score value added, Mark Shifley's offensive component is off the charts. Um, defensively, it hasn't been the same. And, and I thought by drawing attention to that, uh, there would be some conflict and some some confusion as to why I'd be doing that. That All the comments are, you know what, we see that too, we agree with that, I'm glad somebody said it. Um, the biggest piece of grief that I've gotten, I think, was with the defense. And uh, I would suggest that Lucas Spiza is a player that uh, a lot of folks have different opinions on um, in, uh, in attempting to, to grade him out. Um, we considered the fact that he came into Winnipeg with sort of his minutes in the mid-teens, looked pretty solid, looked like a terrific addition immediately, uh, and then had progressively, in my mind, be- began to give up more in terms of quality and be responsible for more chances against and more giveaways and some highlight reel ones as well as his minutes have climbed well above the above the 20s. So Lucas Pisa, for me, with the amount of dangerous chances given up and attributable to him and I looked at a couple of different metrics that all agreed that that he's been responsible for some of that um, I, I gave him a D which to me struck seemed harsh and seemed you know okay I'm putting my, my line in the sand well half the commenters thought that I was way too generous with that half of the commenters oh, thought boy. that obviously it was way too uh, way too cold and so I'm not sure that the world, you know, we, we talk about Sami Niku as a divisive player because people have different opinions on him. Lucas Spiza strikes me as a player that I, I don't think Winnipeg agrees on right now. Uh, I, th- I continue to think that a D is harsh for the role that he played, but I was deferring to the amount of quality given up. So Lucas Spiza is my number one vote for contentious player go. of the report card season. No, fair enough. Uh, I would. I, it, I'll be honest. I, that was the one that caught my attention on the plane uh, when I read read uh, the pieces on the way over from Boston. Um, it's also hard, I, and I also totally understand where you're coming from, and I know that you put a lot of thought into it. Same with when I use grades. I mean, same with when I did the grades after the first quarter, and I gave the coaching staff a B minus, uh, mostly because of chances giving up and both special teams struggling mightily. Despite all of the, you know, the, the adversity uh, camp chaos that they faced, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that Paul Maurice has done an excellent job. But I couldn't take the group off the hook for some of those other warts, for lack of a better term. So, uh, and same thing. I mean, some people thought I should have given them an F, and other people thought I should have given them an A based on the tough, tough things that they've had to deal with. So uh, I certainly understand where you're coming from. Uh, when I do those grades, I kind of grade on a curve, and that gets you even to even more of a gray area. Uh, and by curve, I mean I think I, I try to take expectations into the mix. So for me, I think I, I totally understand where you're going from with, with Spiza. For me, I would give him a, a C for the same reasons that you listed rather than a D, uh, just because you also, also have to remember this is a guy that played eight NHL games last year, and it wasn't because of injury. He was an extra body and now with the benefit of being healthier I mean he came into a situation where I agree with you I mean I think it was a he probably would have been a b minus 
or better when he was on the third pairing, but since moving to the second pairing and when he's at his minutes to a situation where he maybe got exposed a little bit more, I mean, it, in some ways it was similar to Kulikov uh, last year. I mean, Kulikov was a very steady third pairing guy, but in those nights when he had to play 22 minutes, there were some tough nights. So uh, I would say that probably applies to Spiza for me. And I, I, my personal grade would be a C, but I certainly understand where you're going going to and what you took into account. I mean, I just think that waiver claim barely played. I would have given him a slight benefit of the doubt on that. But at the same time, people think that I'm an easy grader. And, and that was also part of the reason why I gave the coaches a, a B-. minus. I mean, uh, in my past, people think that I'm an easy grader. So I thought, well, in this situation... There's enough evidence to suggest that without elite-level goaltending, the Jets had the potential to be in the bottom, never mind the bottom third. They might have been in the bottom five teams uh, this year in that first 20 games of the year. So I think some of that stuff has sorted itself out. Obviously, we talked about the penalty kill a lot. The fact that the power play is running hot in that 35 to 40% range. I mean, now you also have to give the benefit to the coaching staff for that as well. So... Uh, their grade would probably be a little bit higher. And up front, um, I, I would say this, that just with the benefit of, of the recent surge, I think that I would add Kyle Connor a little bit higher, though I do understand the defensive uh, issues that he has on occasion. And and I think that with the last 10-game block for Jack Rozovic, other than the three-assist game, I think that his grade is probably, and I understand you didn't want to use minuses, but I would I would have given Rozovic a B-. minus. Uh, certainly... I'm one of the bigger Rozovic backers. I think that he's got enormous potential and still is going to find his way as a top six player. But in this last 10 games, it's been uh, a tougher goal than usual for Rozovic. And some of that is bouncing between lines, but uh, I think he went through a little bit of a rough patch. And I mean, I think that it's a good opportunity for him to kind of dispel the narrative again. I think that he he needs to kind of get nose to the grindstone again and and use those offensive talents to his ability. I mean, the effort's been there, but the production has dipped a little bit. So uh, those were the only, t- and, and again, these are minor, minor discrepancies between you and I, and I think you nailed uh, the majority of them. So, and again, Connor, I'm not saying put him to an A, but uh, I would give him a B plus just because uh, you understand going out of camp that his first 10 games were quiet, three goals, four points. Since that time, he's been a point-of-game player. So I would just give him a slight uh, uptick and Rozovic a half grade down. But other than that, I think you you laid it, you hit you hit the nail on the head on the majority of them, and that's that's why we have a friendly debate. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, I can handle it. I can handle being told that what I laid out was not in line with uh, with your opinion as well. I I appreciate. Um, these things. Well, that's not what I the, said. That's not what I said. I said that we're, our opinions are very close on almost every player. Oh, pardon me. Yeah. Uh, and I would say me. that Brassois, Brassois would I, I would have given him a C minus because same thing. My expectation for Brassois coming into the year, even taking into account the small sample size, was to hit, for him to be better than average. Or I, he, to me, right now he's below average, which is why I'd give him a C minus. But some of the circumstances again are out of his control. Yeah, I I don't know how you personally feel when it comes to to drawing these things out, but you know, for me, there's a certain amount of um, of awkwardness about ascribing grades at all. Totally, and, uh, it's interesting. I go back. Um, one of the things, obviously, that I'm the most proud of in terms of a piece that I put out this year was uh, was that Blake Wheeler Q and A, where he's really getting introspective. Um, there is a 
a, a, a quote that uh, I was on a different topic entirely that I didn't share, but it was just part of the same conversation. And it was about uh, Winnipeg's exit to the St. Louis Blues at the, you know, in the, in the playoffs last year. And um, what Blake kind of went into a bit of a, a, a few words on how um, game six was just unacceptable and, and not at the level that the Winnipeg Jets um, you know, would have expected for themselves. Uh, he was disappointed in that game. I think the quote was, we didn't show up. Um, and he said something to the effect of, if you wrote 10 stories about how poorly we played in that game, you would have been right. Um, he didn't appreciate the very speculation in, in that had been made about reasons for why, but he was very adamant that that game in particular was a case of the Jets not being good enough and not necessarily being good at all. He was particularly critical. He ended it all with, but we didn't show up. That's not a character flaw. We didn't execute. That's not a character flaw. And I think that that's one of the things that I take into consideration of these grades, and I hope that readers and uh, and listeners and, and everyone as well, is you can say that somebody's struggled on defense, or you can say that somebody's um, been a lead on offense, or what, whatever it is, and you're not judging morality. You're not saying that there's uh, that there's something wrong with this human being for being one of the best athletes in the world, but missing a defensive responsibility on one one play. Um, and and I think that that that's one of the things in the background of, of my mind that was just with me for the last week. Uh, you know, it's not a character flaw. And that's a Blake Wheeler quote specifically about game six. I don't know if that's a useful perspective to, to share now, or, but it's something that I've wanted to put out there because I didn't quote it in the piece. And, uh, you know, I don't know what you think of that or what readers think of that. I just had to, had to sort of get it out because it was so underlying for me. Yeah. And it's not personal. That's the other part of it. When you're handing out grades, I mean, we're asked to assess players how they play all the time it's has nothing to do with dealing with them as people I mean there's a lot it just mistakes get made it's an elite level league even the best players get burned on occasion I mean that you're not ripping them for getting burned hockey's hard I mean classic line from Patrick Line, right I mean hockey's a hard game and there are going to be times where you might you're trying as hard as you can everybody understands that And, and I would even say that applies to game six I mean there's no chance the Jets went into that game saying, you know what, we're going to play our worst game of the year. I mean, they had the heartbreak of game five, and it was, uh, you know, they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, but I don't think they were a defeated team in that game. And, I mean, the conversation, who knows what the conversation is like if Kevin Hayes doesn't knock his own goal out of the net as he's being tackled by Colton Pareko. I mean... I don't think the Jets are having a parade. I'm, you know, there were a lot of teams. There was a long road for them ahead, and even the Blues had to get some breaks. I mean, I was at Game Seven. Jamie Bennett in a wraparound chance that was incredibly close to going in. And if that happens, Patrick Maroon doesn't have the opportunity to be a hometown hero and score in double overtime. I mean, every team catches breaks on the way to winning it all. So the Jets have a long way to go before they're in that discussion again. Um, and I'm very curious to see where things go from here. I mean, I, I've been I've been arguing against the underlying numbers. Not that they're not useful. I think that they're incredibly useful, and the Jets are taking them into account for sure. But I mean, we've talked about this from the start of the season. I mean, I I I don't think it's a guarantee that the Jets not only you know dip but fall off the map like 
some of the numbers would suggest. And there have been a few games recently where I haven't agreed with the natural statric numbers. I mean, I just don't think that the high danger chances were that lopsided. Uh, I think the game against the Leafs, they were super lopsided. And, I mean, yesterday they were a little bit more lopsided, I would definitely agree on. But, I mean, it's there's still some relativity to uh, to all that. And, I mean, the human element, as you point out in your, in your column, is real also. I mean, we're not just spitting out the data and saying this player is this because that's what his XG is or that's what his Corsi is or... Or any of those things. I mean, they're they're all important parts of the equation, which uh, which is why again the classic. Uh, <laughs> that's why you got to play the games, which is, which is part of the fun. So I, I think the, the Jets are you know definitely in a, uphill battle. But there's a lot of teams that are in a similar position, and, I mean we talked about wild card, and I think that's you know the most likely outcome, which is what, we both talked about going into the year. But, you know the Jets are only two points behind the Colorado Avalanche. And that's a different discussion, too. I mean, the Avalanche have been guided by top, top-end talent. But, I mean, they've got some defensive deficiencies uh, as well. So there are there are a few elite teams, and then after that, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Well, there are a lot of ways to win those hockey games and chase teams like Colorado, who actually has the best goal differential in the Western Conference, which is wild. I uh, just was looking at the standings right there plus 29 um the jets are are plus two um yep. in in terms of goal difference so that's that's an incredible one but there are a lot of different ways to win games so um as i who do harp on on things like um shot attempt metrics and uh, expected goals most seasons the, to talk about some of the issues with expected goals this year would take a different episode um but all of these things in context, because there are a lot of different ways to win hockey games. Winnipeg has found a few of them. When the power play is going, well, the, that that helps. When the PK makes the stops, that certainly helps as well. Um, and then Connor Hellebuck, as you and I have talked about many times, as Paul Maurice has acknowledged many times, goaltending is at the heart of this success. If the Jets can add a few more ways to win as the season progresses, whether full health Maybe even the eventual return of a Dustin Bufflin or assets for him um, push play in a better direction at the same time as all of these other things going around. We might be looking at enough wins to, to cement that playoff spot. That is to be told. Like Ken Weeb told you, it is why we play the games. It is why they play the games. And we write and talk about them all the time. Um, this has been another episode of The Boarding Pass. Make sure if you're on Apple, rate us. Make sure to subscribe and follow on Apple and Spotify. Um, and, of course, thank you very much for being here, as you always are. For Ken Weeb, this is Murata Tesh, and this has been The Boarding Pass. <laughs>